in unique ways on Flipper. Some people are after really big assets. They'll pay five or $10 million for an asset, which is big in our context. But some people will buy really small assets, 10, 20, $50,000 and buy multiple of them. Flipper used to be for individual buyers. Okay. And that's clearly not the case anymore. It's now for funds, family offices, private equity, um, company buyers, so people who are who are CEOs of companies coming onto the platform to buy on behalf of their company. And there, I guess the interesting thing is that people are starting to realize the benefit of a cash flow generating asset, right? You're not buying something for opportunity, you're buying something for its historic performance. So that was the first business that I built back in Australia, having moved back from the US. And we got to around 100,000 subscribers to our daily newsletter. Welcome to episode 36 of New Money Talks. Fantastic. Yeah. Perfect. Awesome. We got Blake Hutchison, the CEO of Flippa. This is actually our second virtual podcast. It's the third. We love the in-person ones. It's the third? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Our, our third uh, virtual podcast. It's a little bit different, but um, you know, it's a pleasure to have you. CEO of Flippa. I mean, everyone who's watching us is in the D2C space. So they all know what Flippa is, but maybe they don't know how to best utilize it. Yep. So we can get into that a little bit today. But you also have quite an impressive resume of companies that you've worked with, worked at, advised for, you know, over the past decade or two um, that we'd love to crack into. But um, I don't want to butcher what you do, your roles and responsibilities at Flippa. So I'd love if you could give, you know, the audience an introduction as to, you know, what you do at Flippa and what Flippa is all about. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate the opportunity to be on the show. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Flip is a marketplace to buy and sell online businesses. Uh, so we represent a, a network of, of passionate business owners, entrepreneurs, operators. Uh, they could be operating an e-com business. Maybe it's a blog. Perhaps it's an app. SaaS business. Maybe it's even a podcast, right? So long as it's digital, uh, we believe it has value. And of course, on the buy side, we have this huge network, over a million uh, buyers who are either institutional and or individual, and they're shopping on the marketplace. And they either do that for one of two purposes, either they're acquisition entrepreneurs, so they're looking to buy something and run it and and use the cash flow benefit of that asset, or they're an institutional investor, in which case uh, they're buying to acquire a bolt-on and or strategic um, upside. And it's a thriving global marketplace. So, hey, everyone, I'm here from Melbourne, Australia, but most of our customers are in North America. So we've got a big office in Austin, Texas, and we've also got an office in Amsterdam. Got it. And, awesome. And uh, you're the CEO, right? So you've been doing this for four or five years with Flipper, correct? Yeah, that's right. So the business has been around for 13 years, but you imagine 13 years ago, there were probably very few digital assets being traded, right? And if they yeah. were being traded, they were relatively inexpensive. Um, whereas, of course, the you know the marketplace... Flipper, but also in the macro context, has evolved and matured really substantially. Sure. I took the gig five years ago um, with a really, really clear mandate to to build us into a massive ecosystem of buyers and sellers trading digital assets, and that's what we are today. We we see over twelve thousand digital assets sell each uh, year, which is certainly more than anyone else we know. And we have some really, really cool tech under the hood, which helps to get those deals done. And our buyers come to us to make money and our sellers come to us to make money. And we're just here to match make and help hope them get the deal done. That's amazing. I, I really don't even know where to start. Like, usually we like, hey, tell us your history of how you got here. But also like uh, everyone's usually less experienced than you are. I don't want to say young because I don't want to put an age to, uh, to you, but like, I'm kind of curious how Flippa got to this point because honestly, I, I didn't even know it was around for 13 years. You know, I think we started seeing Flippa yeah. maybe like six, seven years ago, like in the Shopify ecosystem, as a place to like if you had like a, a store, there's a place to maybe like offload it. For, 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 yeah, you know what I mean. Um, yeah, but- it's probably uh, it's a cool story for people to know because uh, building marketplaces is hard. Building D2C is hard too, right? But building marketplaces is hard. And people often talk about the cold start problem. You know, which side of the marketplace do you start on? Mm-hmm. Do you try to 
tell everyone that you've got lots of sellers to acquire the buyers or do you tell all the sellers you've got the buyers to acquire the sellers? Mm. And so it's tricky. But Flipper was benefited by coming out of a community and communities are still worth their weight in gold. So if you're looking to build a company, building a community is a good way to go. And so Flipper was benefited by having a community. It spun out of a company called SitePoint. Okay. And SitePoint is still around today. It was a developer community. And so developers and engineers are obviously early adopters. They're obviously the builders of all of these great products and solutions out there in the marketplace today. And as a function of that, they were trading assets within the community. And so the founders um, who have multiple businesses recognize that. And they recognize that you could probably spin out a business in its, on its own. Um, and then encourage that community to actually do it in a, in a core marketplace environment. And that's what happened. So that happened 13 years ago, and there's still many members of the, the original community that are buying and selling on the platform today. Interesting. Uh, sorry to cut you off. Do you guys hear that, uh, I, that like audio in the back? I do hear that. I don't yeah. know what that is. Well, what is that? I don't think that's on my... I, I can mute myself. You guys tell me if you still hear it. It's gone. It's gone. Kyle, it's you. You're the culprit. <laughs> we can all we can always we can always edit this, but you're you're muted now. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear yeah. you. You think that was coming from me? Uh, it stopped. Let me yeah. let me grab headphones real quick. I don't know. Give me one second. It stopped now though. Yeah, it did stop. Yeah, hey, I just want to make sure that doesn't happen again because I think uh, it might be picking up something in this mic. Let's see. There we go. Honestly, the Riverside's very good at cleaning that stuff up, so I'm not even too worried. But yeah, and, and they they record it all internally, so whether we hear hear it or not, uh, all right. So you guys can hear me well. Yeah, gotcha. all good, all good. You you, you were talking about the, the history and everything too um, about Flippa. I think we got to the end of it, right? That's where we were. Yeah, I'm happy to kick it off again if you want. Yeah, so, long story short, um, long story short, you know, Flip is a thriving community of of entrepreneurs and operators, but it's spun out of a community. And you know, as I said, for those people who are trying to build something, a community is a great way to start because if they if they're doing something, you know, you're probably onto something. And that was certainly the case with Flipper. Yeah, I think community is very interesting though because like people think of community in different ways. And I'm curious how we, where they built their community and how they built it. Was it like a Facebook group? Was it an email list? Like a blog? Like what was it? Yeah, it was essentially a blog. Um, SitePoint's been around for 20 years now. And so it was essentially a blog where engineers were learning. So they would come to the platform to basically learn from either the content that exists within the ecosystem or from each other. Um, and the ecosystem being the SitePoint ecosystem. And, um, you know, when you put a large group of people together and watch what plays out, um, they'll end up engaging with each other. And so they were doing two things. They were trading design. And so there was another marketplace spun out called 99designs. I don't know if you've heard of that. So 99designs spun out of that same community as well. And that exited to Vistaprint last year. Oh, wow. And of course, you know, Flipper hasn't exited yet, but we're fast growth and, and things are going well. This is like NFTs before NFTs then, because like like digital, like art assets online, like 12 years ago type of thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the NFT thing is really interesting, right? I mean, it, it'll come back um, and be really successful. Obviously, it's going through a, a tricky time right now, given the macroeconomic climate um, and a few, a few dodgy customers in the crypto space, which made it a little less trustworthy. But... Um, you know, for us, we're talking about thriving cash flow generating businesses. So people who build good quality e-com content, SaaS and app businesses finding an exit. And what we say is that exit and ownership is for everyone. Mm. It's not about unicorns. It's not about NASDAQ listed companies. It's not about 50 million and $500 million series B cap raises. It's about giving anyone who is a business owner the opportunity to find value for their asset and then giving buyers and investors the opportunity to buy assets regardless of value. We see prolific investors buying hundreds 
if not thousands of assets oh, wow. at low price points. And so when you think about the concept of micro private equity or micro M&A, um, that's got real merit because you might go and buy a blog that has 500,000 unique visitors monthly, but is making very little in revenue. And so you can buy that for very little, but you've actually acquired a real asset that you can use for the purpose of growing your other businesses. Interesting. And so people do things in, in unique ways on Flipper. Some people are after really big assets. They'll pay 5 or $10 million for an asset, which is big in our context. But some people will buy really small assets, $10,000, $50,000 and buy multiple of them. And so you've seen a big uh, jump in this whole like smaller, like down market private equity happening lately. That's like that's like that's like a- yeah. I mean, the interesting, thing, the most interesting thing that we've seen over the last probably three years is that Flipper used to be for individual buyers, okay, and that's clearly not the case anymore. It's now for funds, family offices, private equity, um, company buyers, so people who are who are CEOs of companies coming onto the platform to buy on behalf of their company. Mm-hmm. And they're, I guess the interesting thing is that people are starting to realize the benefit of a cash flow generating asset, right? You're not buying something for opportunity. You're buying something for its historical performance. Um, and it's not speculative. It's real. It's turning over real cash. And I think that company CEOs are starting to become very aware of how costly their marketing division is. Mm. And so option A, go and pay Google and Facebook lots of money to acquire a customer. Option B, acquire a business, get inorganic growth and own the customer. That makes sense. Like the blogs in a sense, though, that's a great way to... Like even newsletters, that's been a new thing too, I'm sure, newsletters. Yeah, newsletters are really interesting. Um, I mean, even e-com, right? Like we, we see multiple company buyers. Mm-hmm. They'll have um, a vitamin business. It's making 15 to $20 million top line. They'll go and buy another one that's doing a million dollars top line. What's up, New Money Talks fam? Unless you've been living under a rock, if you own an e-commerce brand or you're looking to get into e-commerce, you've probably heard of this incredible tool called ShopHunter.io. Now, ShopHunter has an incredible algorithm that actually scrapes information and data across millions of different Shopify brands for your personal gain. Whether you wanna spy on your competition and see how much money they're making, or whether you wanna see what products they're uploading for products that you can sell on your own website, ShopHunter's got it all. Once you sign up and make an account, this is what the dashboard looks like. You're gonna have a top performer section, which is my personal favorite, and also my ShopHunter section. And under top performers, you have top stores, top products, and top tracked. Now, top stores will actually show you the highest gross revenue generating stores over the last 24 hours across millions of different Shopify brands so that you can see what's working for them, what products they're selling, what niche they're in, to reverse engineer what's working and to get inspiration on what products you can sell. Then we have top products. Top products shows you the highest gross revenue generating singular products on some of these different brands and literally hands you potential winning products on a silver platter. And then lastly, in the My Shop Hunter section, you can actually spy on specific brands that you can keep track of, right? So you will select a brand, you'll have the opportunity to see what Shopify website that they're running, you'll have the opportunity to see where the product lies, maybe on AliExpress, and you can keep track of maybe some of the new products that they uploaded, right? And we all know the saying, good artists copy, great artists steal. So if you wanna take some of these products and directly import them to your store, they're probably gonna have a significantly higher likelihood of success than any other random product that you stumble across on AliExpress. So don't take my word for it. Check out the link in the description, download Shop Hunter, and see for yourself how incredibly powerful this tool is. Make sure that you mention that New Money Talk sent you and the Shop Hunter team will take care of you. Now let's get back to the podcast. All of a sudden, they've got a, a creative growth in their business. Um, it's synergy. It's got synergy with their core operations so they can get efficiency out of it. Um, if they've got a good quality brand manager on staff, they deploy that brand manager on the new asset as well. Um, they utilize that subject matter expertise. So I mean, acquisition as a growth strategy is proven over decades on decades, uh, but it's becoming more common. Uh, so you have so 
So I want I wanted to get into yeah, I wanted to get a little bit more into you, right? Because so John owns a an e-commerce 3PL. They have dozens of brands. I have uh, an, an e-commerce growth agency. So we kind whenever we get you know on a podcast, we have a video, we have a conversation. Uh, sometimes we become walking billboards of our own companies, right? Without you know maybe failing to go back to the roots of how we even built those companies, how we got the skill sets to be in the position that we are, uh, and to have the vision of where we have going forward. So I wanted to take it back to Good Forty Four, and yeah. I wanted to ask you about that company that you you founded, and see if there was anything that you were able to take away from that, learn from it, uh, some of the trials and tribulations that maybe helped fuel the the role that you have today, and where you see you know Flippa going in the future. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Um, I've got lots of scar tissue from that experience. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah. I mean, in short, I was living in San Francisco um, and things were going really, really well. And I decided to move back to Australia and copy a daily newsletter, which was very, very popular in the US. And so, or multiple, actually. There was Daily Candy, there was Urban Daddy, there was Thrill List. Um, there were multiple daily newsletters, which were, had built very, very strong media companies off the back of lifestyle oriented audiences. And I liked that concept. I liked it for Australia. So that was the first business that I built back in Australia, having moved back from the US. And we got to around 100,000 subscribers to our daily newsletter. Um, and I should have just continued as a media company. So selling advertising, letting people access our audience and monetizing the audience in that way. But I didn't. I always believed that the best pathway was to establish the community, establish trust within the community, and then build a commerce offering on top of it. And so prior to the Groupon and living social craze of daily deals, I launched what were curated high-end deals for that same audience. So you had 100,000 people, and on a Wednesday was deal day. So Monday, Tuesday, um, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, that was just content. And Wednesday was deal day. And that worked too. So I layered the first piece of commerce on top of the newsletter and you would be basically be able to buy, you know, um, two cocktails for the price of one at the best bar in town. And you could do that in Melbourne. You could do that in Sydney. You could do that in Perth. Um, and we hadn't launched other cities yet. And so that worked well. And problem is, though, one day doesn't work because you can't make enough money. Yeah. So then you had the problem of, well, do you do that on other days and then cannibalize, cannibalize what people love of you, which is your great content that they receive each day? So I started to think about what the audience liked. And the audience loved food and drink. That was obvious. Yeah. So we started talking to providers about how they could get access to our community. And long story short, we discovered that um, there was a huge specialist food, wine, beer, cocktail scene, and they didn't have access to customers. It was hard for them to get access to customers. They'd go and sell to traditional brick-and-mortar outlets. And so in the US, you'll both be familiar with Etsy, right? It's a marketplace yeah. for, for good quality handmade goods and it's, it's, um, it's, it's an outstanding business. Um, and I loved that business model and I loved the curated nature of what they were doing in the early days. And I loved the idea of a marketplace. So I spun up a marketplace for these specialty food providers, which was called Good 44, that our subscribers could get access to. And I built a subscription commerce offering on top of it before subscription commerce was really a thing. And that was a nightmare. Um, this is before Stripe existed and PayPal didn't have wow. a subscription offering. Um, and so the whole idea was that now you, Kyle, or you, John, could buy your favorite from your favorite cheesemaker or your favorite butcher or your favorite honey producer. And you could do that uh, from the cart and subscribe monthly or quarterly, whatever it was that was interesting to you. And so people were buying all this stuff. And so we had 
50 or 60 merchants. Long story short, um, I'm an idiot because the issue was logistics, right? You've got one of the, the most archaic logistics and supply chain footprint footprints here in, in Australia. This is before Uber exists with Uber Eats, right? Um, you don't have people riding around on bikes delivering stuff. Um, that part of the economy doesn't exist yet. So you're relying on either the equivalent of the US Postal Service to go and deliver specialty food. Well, that's not really going to happen. And in some cases, it's perishable. And in some time, sometimes it's 110 degrees here and you're delivering chocolate. Um, so the vendors loved that they were getting good quality customers at a high average order value on a repeat rate. The customers liked the idea of it, but the product and the quality of the product once it arrived there was often challenged. And because we only had 50 merchants that we were scaling and I'd been doing this for five years within different concepts, I had to wave the white flag and say, as an entrepreneur, I'm, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. It's a good concept. Yeah. But I can't figure out how to scale it to, shouldn't be 50 merchants. It should be 50,000 merchants. And, and um, yeah. did you raise a bunch of money for this and everything too? Yeah, but a bunch of money is relative in Australia. So back then, um, venture capital was not as mature as it is now in Australia. And so you could get very little money. And where you could get money, you tended to find yourself in the hands of some vulture capitalists who were like, well, you got a young, young, dumb guy who wants to work exceptionally hard. Let's take lots of his business off his hands and see how we go. I see. Yeah. And so I did that, uh, but it didn't work. So what lessons did I learn? A lesson, I learned that community means a lot and people loved what we were doing. And that that counted for a lot and you get a lot of pride and satisfaction for what you've built from that. So I love, I love community building. I learned that um, the end-to-end experience is far bigger than the concept. And so it's one thing to say, wow, I've got this great idea, which every person claims they have, right? And it's another thing to even build good tech it's another thing altogether to have an end-to-end experience that works seamlessly together and in such a way that the end product and the end service that your end customer gets, they love. And that's the tricky bit. That's the expensive bit. That's the challenging thing to scale. I also learned that high average order values or high transaction values are just the best. Because it doesn't matter how thin your margin is, the law of large numbers means it's bigger than a lower AT, um, lower order value margin. Yeah. So you can run an 80% margin on a $100 product or a 15% margin on a $1,000 product. No. And you're better off despite the fact your margin is only 15%. Yeah. So I learned that and that set me up for... Um, kind of understanding the benefit of high-value marketplaces and high-value retail, high-value e-com, and even SaaS because lifetime values in SaaS um, enable you to continue to acquire customers and get that payback period shorter and shorter. Um, hopefully, that answers your question. Oh, that was yeah, that was absolutely. amazing answer <laughs> to the question. Yeah, I, I had a um, – it's funny. I had a, a friend of mine, not funny, actually quite inspiring, who – was in the e-commerce space. He was building brands. You know, he was making okay money for you know a 19, 20 year old who was probably making you know 10, 15 k a month, um, which is great. But he came across the world of buying and selling businesses. So he bought his first business uh, for maybe five or 10 k. Didn't have much money saved, and he you know did a little bit better with advertising because he had some experience from you know his little dinky little drop shipping stores, and he scaled it up um, significantly and substantially enough. To where he sold that first business for six figures. So since then, two, three years ago, he's done this a few dozen times. He's built out uh, you know, lists of potential buyers and he's almost formed a little bit of a mini like brokerage company. And when you see the power of having a very small volume of large deal sizes, it it makes you know running something like an e-commerce business seem almost foolish because you're selling a thousand of these twenty dollar products a month instead of you know ten 
$10,000 businesses that you can flip on a monthly basis. So yeah. it's a very interesting concept. And I feel like a lot, a lot of a lot of people uh, are maybe scared to take that leap to buy that first business because they, they don't know how to do proper vetting. And I think you guys have done a pretty good job at vetting the businesses that you take on so that you know it, you, you at least give the best chances of people who are acquiring from you guys uh, yeah. success. So what, what would you say are the most important things to look for in a business for it to make financial sense to invest in it? Yeah, so Kyle, the vetting piece is really important. And what we do here is we plug into 15 different data sources. So we plug into Xero, QuickBooks Online, Stripe, Shopify, BigCommerce, um, Google Analytics, et cetera. So we're able to amass data and that data um, clearly enables buyers to make informed decisions as to whether the asset is a good quality asset, how the asset is growing, what the seasonality of the asset looks like, average order values, refund rates, and all of that data is, is super critical. Um, the things that I would say are the most important things when when buying and or selling are one, your trailing 12-month performance, right? Because ultimately, we're talking about, we're not talking about startups here. We're talking about cash flow generating businesses. And so they're being bought uh, for the opportunity, but they're being bought on the basis of its financial performance. And so people don't pay for opportunity. They look for opportunity. They pay for historical performance. So trailing 12 months is really important. The second thing that's really important is um, kind of obviously understanding the community and understanding how your customers behave with you. And so do you have um, a good repeat rate? And buyers love e-com businesses where there's evidence of a good repeat rate. Um if they are buying a dropship business where, you know, you're advertising on Instagram and you're doing a damn good job of that and you're really clever in your advertising, but clearly you've got a customer base which is never going to buy a second time round. And you're always just in this ongoing wheel. Hedonic treadmill. Yeah. That becomes a little less palatable. What's up, New Money Talks fam? I wanted to quickly talk about today's sponsor, Lancaster Resources, stock ticker LCR or LANRF. So Lancaster Resources is a company that explores and develops minerals like lithium and copper, which are vital for electric vehicles and clean energy. Now, with the growing market demand of electric vehicles, the U.S. government has actually introduced a new rule that requires for a minimum percentage of minerals in EV batteries to come from domestic or free trade agreement sources. And Lancaster Resources with its US projects is well positioned to meet this requirement. This presents a significant opportunity for the company's growth and value. Now, as you can see, the electric vehicle revolution is expected to reach upwards of $1.7 trillion by 2032. And so when you talk about the technological advancements that this company has that are relevant to that global booming market, you have a company that's poised for upside potential. Now, to be clear, this is not financial advice and you should always do your own due diligence whenever you are researching any company that you may potentially want to consider investing in or you should speak to an investing professional. That being said, investors interested in Lancaster Resources can consider their stock tickers LCR or LAN. RF and explore investment options through various trading platforms or financial advisors. Overall, Lancaster Resources focus on critical minerals and involvement in the EV industry, making them worth watching as they contribute to the clean energy transition. So if you are interested in checking out Lancaster Resources, you can click the link in our description or you can check them out via stock ticker LCR or LANRF. Now let's get back to the podcast. For a buyer. Now I'm not saying there's not buyers for those assets. There is because there's some buyers who love that business model. They know it really well. That's their skill set. But on average, a strategic buyer is going to be less interested in a business which is just heavily dependent on on the spinning mouse wheel and heavily dependent on, on Instagram or Facebook to acquire the customer. Um, probably the other one is the obvious one, refund rates. Like if you see a high refund rate as a buyer, you're probably going to steer away from that business because it means that, you know, ultimately the end customer is not satisfied. Um, reputation. So they'll tend to go and look up the review scores of any given business um, and get a sense of how how the business is actually perceived. And also the way that you're communicating with your end customers on those forums um, gives them some sense of your credibility 
the business culture that you've built, the brand that you stand for, and that all becomes very, very important. Um, and then I would say history. So is it the type of business that just went like that because you spent a bunch of money? Or is it the type of business which is for the last three years just beautifully flat, just horribly, horribly consistent? And buyers of these types of assets, they're not like VCs. They're not startup buyers, right? They're not startup investors. What they love is consistency. Because when you buy an asset, there's a great phrase called stabilize the patient. And so if you spend half a million dollars on an asset, you don't change anything. You spend your $500,000 and you make sure that that asset you Wake up every morning and all you do is make sure that that asset performs the exact same way it did before you buy it, before you bought it. Mm-hmm. Only after you've done that for a period of time, let's say six months, nine months, 12 months, is the point in time where you invest. And so that's why they love really, really stable, flat businesses because then their job of stabilizing the patient should be more assured. Yeah. So I, I think part of the the process of listing a business that business owners have to be aware of is a typical sales cycle on how long that it'll actually take from the point of listing to the point of acquisition, completing contracts, getting the wire payment, being excited. Um, you know, and so I guess what is that typical lifespan and life cycle look like, um, for the average business owner? Low value businesses, quick, high value businesses, slow. So a low value business, let's say sub 100 K you can often get a deal done in a month. So that's end-to-end, list, find the buyer, negotiate, receive LOI, go through DD, asset transfer, funds transfer, one month. Um, Higher value businesses, depends on the value, but let's say a $10 million asset. A $10 million asset has fewer buyers, has a greater likelihood of being subject to finance, earnouts milestones, therefore a longer negotiation, the due diligence given the quantum at stake tends to be longer, typically a 45-day due diligence period. So you're already beyond a month just in that one process. The escrow process and the funds transfer process, the understanding of how the business actually works um, will take a bit longer too. And so that can be up to six months. I would say that the important thing for people to remember is that there's new buyers coming in all the time. So what we often say to our clients is, okay, you're sitting on a $5 million asset. Yes, we haven't found a buyer for you using, we've got this awesome AI engine, which we can talk about if you want. But anyway, the point being is we sometimes finding a buyer takes some time. And that's what you've got to achieve first. And so we might not be able to find a buyer in the first month. But we pick up twenty two to twenty five thousand new buyers every month. Wow! And so it could wow. be that you stay on the platform for that fifth week, and that buyer shows their face because they're new. So, 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 yeah. what does that mean? Stay on the platform though, because like pretty much like I've been on Flipper before, right? Like you go there, you kind of like filter through different options and everything. You read through it, and then they kind of just like disappear the next day. Like personally, right? Yep. Are there people literally on there all day, every single day for like as a, as a job type of thing? Is that what you're talking about? So, so yeah, certain, I mean, I met a guy in, I mean, not personally, it was virtually like this, yeah, but yeah. I met a guy in Dubai last week and he has a full-time analyst sitting on Flipper. Wow. Um, now, I'm not saying he only sits on Flipper and doesn't oh, go look for deals elsewhere. Of course he does, but he has, his entire job is to find um, high-trafficked content sites to acquire. Um, and this guy who represents a big ad agency in Dubai, I think in Singapore as well, um, he wants to buy a thousand sites this year. And so, you know, it's May and he's acquired a couple of hundred and he wants to get to a thousand sites. So yeah, he's, he's got a full-time person doing that. Other people, um, they'll set up an alert and they set up an alert and then wait for deals to be matched to them and only come back when the deal is matched to them. And then more recently on, on, in February, we launched, um, our AI matching engine. And so the AI matching engine looks at hidden and latent intent. 
Uh, we've built two graph neural networks, and so one sits on the buyer side, one sits on the sell side, and understands the relationship of buyers to each other. Whether they know each other or not, that doesn't matter. It's their relationship to each other from a search and browse and purchase and intent to purchase pattern. And then similarly, it sits on the sell side. And so now we actively notify, um, even if they don't set up an alert, uh, buyers who are relevant for particular listings. And so we do that to the tune of about 400,000 matches a week. And that brings in lots more buyers and therefore sellers have even more opportunity to sell and buyers find what they want without having to actually wake up every morning and check out. Uh, I, I do want to chat about the AI. I think before that, you don't have to answer if, if you can't. I'm very curious, what's the largest transaction that's ever happened on Flipper before? Uh, the largest ever was last calendar year, so 2022, and it was $35 million. Wow. Uh, what kind of company was that? That was a app, Jeez. iOS hmm. and Android app. So, so like rather than go into like a normal like investment banker or something like that to like make this deal happen, they go to Flipbook. That's pretty sick. Yeah, because if you think about it, um, one, most in, most good investment banks don't go into Main Street and lower middle, middle market deal sizes. And then if they do, they don't understand digital. Flipper understands digital. Interesting. So we understand the metrics that matter for the asset types that we represent. Find me a banker who can tell you what matters about an app. None, yeah. I challenge you. Don't find me a banker who understands how... Special, specialization. If, if I find you a banker, you will sponsor the podcast. That's what we'll do. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then the other thing that is um, tricky is find me a banker who can amass buyers at our scale, at our speed, and match them up with our accuracy. That's fair. So what they will do is they'll uh, they'll pick up their phone and they'll say, "Yes, Kyle, you own an app. Good man. I'd like to represent you. Let me go through my phone or my HubSpot CRM or my Salesforce or their Gmail, and I will go and find you a buyer and I'll start dialing for you. And now compare that to two graph neural networks, which are understanding buyer behavior, latent and hidden intent versus real intent." Uh, versus actual uh, purchasing behavior and 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 do that to the scale that we do, which is 400,000 matches a week. Um, you, you can't compete. So, so from what you're saying, like, especially with this AI and everything, over time, you're just going to keep going up market? Is that what it looks like? Because, like, why can't you do a $100 million deal on Flip? Like, you could do a $35 million deal. Like, what's the difference? Yeah, so we have a lot of buyers who have challenged that with us, actually. They've said, okay, well, you know, I really like what you guys do, but I'd like to see bigger deals. Um, and so we are starting to see a lot more big deals. Um, and so 35 mil was the biggest. Look, I don't think you end up positioning yourself as middle market and, and going up against investment bankers because at the end of the day, they do have an outstanding skill set. Um, and once you get to sort of a $100 million business, you know, the level of, um, pre-work that goes into preparing the asset for sale. Um, I think we need to pay due respect to. Uh, but but for assets which are which are truly digital in nature, um, where the data sources, the, the platforms that they operate on are effectively the data sources to prove out the, the quality of the asset, you can sell. And I, and I think that we can consistently do that up to $50 million. So I wanted to I wanted to ask for those who are watching who have a brand that they might not think is exitable, that they might think is too small, they haven't ran for too long. Um, and I'll give you an example. And uh, I'd love maybe some feedback on what what you think a business of this specific criteria um, might be worth selling, if at all. Right. So let's say someone comes to me and John. Right. Let's say they're a client of John's. They're shipping out three thousand dollars a month. They're maybe doing 50, 100K a month in revenue. Um, maybe 20, 30% profit. And, but they've only been around for like eight or nine months. And they said, you know what? I'm, I'm incredibly steady, but I want to move on to something bigger. And, but I'd like the opportunity to sell this. Um, what, what are the EBITDA multiples looking like right now on Flippa? What would you recommend to someone who maybe doesn't have a business for as long as a year, um, et cetera? Just with that limited information, I know it's very limited. Um, what type of advice would you recommend to them? And how much do you think they'd be able to realistically sell a business like that for? 
So it's very hard to sell a business which is under a year old, first comment. Second yep. comment is you're not going to get the multiple you want because typically what they'll say is e-commerce multiples are X. So let's say e-commerce multiples are four to five times. So they'll say I want four to five times because that's what the market comps say. The problem is the market comps are always on established businesses with an operating history of greater than three or four years. So the market comps don't actually make sense. So now you're looking to sell to someone who wants to buy your traction and wants to follow your blueprint. That means they need to understand how you've done what you've done. And if you've done that, you're probably very, very good at Facebook ads. And you say, hey, on the listing page, you say, hey, it's really easy. Follow my blueprint. It's not actually really easy. You find it really easy uh, because you're really damn good at that. And you've got years of experience, or if you don't have years of experience, you've studied it and you've got a sixth sense for how that works. So we don't like those assets on Flipper at that age. And the reason being is you're often tricking a buyer into thinking that things are easier than they really are. So your question of what it's worth, you said 100K, you said maybe 20% margin. So it's doing 20 grand clear. It's been operating for nine months. So it's doing 200 grand thereabouts. Um, Maybe you could sell it for 0.5 times. So maybe you could sell it for a, hundred grand, but I believe it's yeah. worth more than that. It's just that if no you one's just hang on to it a little bit longer. Yeah. It's just that no one's going to pay you more than that. I'm not saying it's not worth yeah. interesting. Definitely. Just that there's too much that is speculative about it for someone to go further. Than now, would your answer, would your answer change if let's say that company was working with a, let's say an agency and they said, these guys know their stuff. It is going to be a plug and play system for you because we have such a great team and system in place that will be lended to you. Um, and so I guess that's my, my first question is if there was, let's say, an agency or an infrastructure in place that they could come into where things wouldn't change. And then number what's up, Numity Talks fam. Did you know that over 35% of American households carry some form of credit card debt? and over 60% of those households live paycheck to paycheck. Well, if either of those two statistics apply to you, James Yang and his team over at Limitless Financial Solutions have a solution for you. Now, James offers a variety of services such as his semi-passive Facebook automation stores, such as his credit funding services, and his credit repair services. So whether you're looking to get your credit right, start a new business, escape your nine to five or the rat race and build a semi-passive income stream using the powerful vehicle of e-commerce, I would highly suggest clicking the link in the description below, talking to one of James's team members to see how they can help you. So if you are interested in working with James and his team over at Limitless Financial Solutions, make sure that you click the link down below and make sure to tell them that New Money Talks sent you so you can get that New Money Talks discount. Now let's get back to the podcast. Two, if it was also on maybe a slight upward trend. Would either of those two things maybe influence the the deal size? Well, let's say it did influence the deal size. So let's say you could get it to a $200,000 ask. My question to you would be this. Would you like to take $200,000 out of your account to buy that asset and start from essentially zero? Because let's face it, it's, it's, it's generating its revenue as a function of its investment each month. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have a brand yet. Um, it It's a function of its ability to influence a customer at a moment in time to go and buy something. So I'm about to spend 200 grand or I can go to that exact same agency and say, here's $200,000. Make me sing. That's true. This, I, this- I, would, I, would give you, I would give you some pushback on that. So I'll, I'll I'll give you some pushback on that because so I had a brand that I scaled up to around 1.5 million a month, and we had many competitors. Right, they tried to come in, and you know we weren't we probably weren't doing anything crazy advertising wise, but they tried coming in and replicating what we had built, uh, and they couldn't do it because of whether it was timing, whether it was the strategy, the creatives. Um, whether it was you know having a good ad account, whatever it might be, I think there's a lot of factors that go into having 
the ability to grow a company and maintain it at a value that it's not always as easy as just writing a check to outsource it and maybe copy someone else. Yeah, you know, and so I, I guess agree, which is why, you know, we're obviously Flipper and we believe in acquisition entrepreneurship. Yeah. So I completely respect the pushback. Um, I guess it would come down to the individual who is buying. So do I understand what I'm getting into? Or do I understand that each month my 15% margin is a function of 85% investment? Do I actually get that? Because what often people will do is they'll say, oh, my God, how good is this? I'm buying something that's actually generating X amount of money each month. Well, yes, it is generating X amount of money each month, so long as you put in each X amount of money each month. Now, that's not a passive investment. That's an always-on slog. I don't dismiss it. I've done it myself. Flipper's an always-on slog. Um, <laughs> the, the the problem is what the buyer perceives they're buying. So if I buy something that's been around for four years or five years, it's a very, very different story. What I'm actually buying is a proven history of performance. If I buy something for nine months, I'm effectively buying on faith. Faith that the agency will continue to represent me. Faith that the agency likes me as much as they like the, the, the prior founder. Faith that the agency will continue to spend as much time with me as they did. Faith that when I take over the asset and the Facebook accounts, that I don't have to warm them up again. Yeah. Well, and that and that um, things work just as well for me as they did for the prior owner. I'm not saying they're not good businesses, by the way, because um, we represent them here at Flipper all the time and we love those businesses. So it's just a function of, I guess, challenging where where $200,000 might be best invested. So I, I hate saying the word best. I'm going to ask, like, if you did have the $200,000, right, and you were on Flippo, and you say you were, like, 27, 28 years old, you had two hundred grand, and you thought, oh, I can acquire a company off of Flippo, and I can grow it, maybe try to resell it. What is, like, the perfect type of company to use your $200,000 and buy? Have you seen that has been successful over and over on Flippo? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, the first the first point I would make is um, buy something that you can imagine five years from now that particular category or that particular product still has utility for a large enough cohort of the community. And so what is that? Well, travel, finance, um, health and well-being, um, homewares, like you're still going to want to toast a piece of bread in five years' time, most likely, right? So if you're selling 100,000 toasters every month, that's a great business to buy because I can imagine that there's still an opportunity to sell 100,000 toasters in five years from now. Definitely. So yeah. you find something that has uh, longevity, that has staying power. And then you think about business models. So where do you have a skill set? So if your skill set is merchandising. Well, e-com is awesome for you. If your skill set is copy editing, then you should probably buy a content site. If your skill set is tech, well, SaaS, it's a really good place for you. So then it comes down to that. What I've seen work really well time in and time out at, at Flipper are those people who buy content websites, right? Now, of course, that's challenged right now because of the AI piece. And so there's some there's some question marks around how how traditional content operators shift their businesses and their business models and their approach. But time and time again, I've seen content websites bought and leveraged to do very, very well. Um yeah, hopefully that answers the question. I mean, no, it definitely does, hundred percent. Yeah, it's not, it's not, it's not so much about you know the what business have the highest upside. It's like what businesses are going to have the highest you know return on your time and like what you're actually passionate about. 
And it's more important that like, you know, you get a return in, in a business that you're familiar with because you're probably going to like growing it if you're going to be spending a lot of time on it. Yeah. Sure. And one of the things I'll, I'll say, is buying a business is the opposite of a get rich quick scam. It's literally the yeah. polar opposite. So <laughs> yeah. I buy something for $100,000. I paid two times net profit multiple on that. So absolute minimum, my payback on that, if I run it the same way, and let's assume I'm not a business wizard, I'm going to run it the exact same way. So my payback on that is two years. Mm. But the good news is, the good news is, I paid $100,000 for it. It's making $50,000 a year. Um, the amazing thing about that is I am making $50,000 a year. So that is real cash flow that I can then either put in my back pocket or reinvest into the business. And I can fast track growth by reinvesting those cash, those those things. The other thing about it is I'm actually sitting on a maturing asset. And that maturing asset is appreciating in value. Mm. So not only am I making $50,000 a year with a two-year payback, I'm actually sitting on an asset that I bought for $100,000 that may actually be worth $125 next year and $150 the year after. So I just like to point out, though, that this is not the type of thing where you buy something, three months later you flip it for more. That's not that's not what the brand name means. Yeah. I hear you. I, I, I know you. But, it, but, you, but, but you could do that, <laughs> especially if you give it a year. It's like theoretically – you could jump in and you could buy a business for, especially if you know what you're doing yeah. and you add value during that 12 month period. Cause a, a lot of people are probably looking at that six figure business saying, you know, well, I have 50 K in the bank. I want to finance that, but I know I can add value to it. And I know that in 12 months, you know, worst case scenario, if I maintain the value and I broke even, I could resell it and be break even or maybe a little bit profitable. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's a really, really important point. So if you know that you can build upside into a business then clearly this is you know this is what private equity does right they buy stuff they rip the guts out of it they make it more efficient and then they go and sell it they make it sound strategic and very sophisticated but at the end of the day that's what they're doing and this is exactly what happens in some cases here at flipper you get a savvy operator they buy an e-com business pay quarter of a million dollars for it and two years later they sell it for one and a half million dollars and what they've done is improve the operational efficiency of that asset. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. We we know you got to get going here, so we'll wrap things up. Um, where where can the people who are listening and watching find you? Whether it's social media, contacting you through Flippa, um, if they are interested in getting in touch. Yeah, if you um if you're listening to this pod now, uh, you know, thanks obviously for listening in. Just flick me a note at Blake at Flipper.com and and tell me that you heard me on the the New Money Talks podcast. Um, and that'll mean I'll reply to you. Um, otherwise, get me on LinkedIn. Uh, and, and thanks for the opportunity, guys. 100%. Yeah, it was a pleasure having you. 100%. And one, one more thing before we lose you. On our end, we do this thing called the uh, Gentleman's Agreement. On a, you guys should do this at Flippa too, where it's like all this value is free. We pretty much got the founder of Flippa in Australia on this podcast. If you're watching this at this point, make sure you like, comment, and subscribe. Share this with a friend. That was a pretty awesome company in the D2C space, e-commerce space. So we appreciate you coming on and uh, I hope our audience really enjoys this. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yep.